This podcast comes under the heading of well-beaten oil, which is an expression that uh, one's uh, Puritan ancestors used a couple hundred years ago to describe a sermon that uh, had uh, come out of a preacher after hours and hours and hours and hours of study and uh, reflection and uh, exegetical work and consulting of the sources and consulting his own heart and a kind of deep archaeological uh, searchlight placed on all parts and sections of the penitent uh, human uh, wretch that was the preacher in light of a detailed, wissenschaftliche study of the text of the Bible itself, which would produce supposedly well-beaten oil. Well, whether that's true or not, this particular podcast, which is entitled Protestant Interiors, definitely comes under the heading of something that I've been thinking about for about 40 years, maybe longer, maybe 50 years. And uh, uh, I would normally not undertake it because I'm not quite as focused on issues of this nature uh, at this point in my life. But I've had... uh, Uh, requests, uh, even fervent requests from uh, uh, people for me to at least devote a little time to this lifelong um, observation and interest that I've developed of uh, Protestant interiors. Now, what I'm specifically speaking about is the interior appointments and architecture and decoration and arrangements of Anglican slash Church of England in England and um, Episcopalian in this country, interiors as reflecting a Protestant sensibility within Christianity uh, as to be differentiated from a Catholic sensibility. And what so many people, and it hasn't changed, I doubt, uh, so many uh, people who are involved in religion, and specifically those who care or are involved in any kind of Anglican or Episcopalian format, they just aren't, haven't been told that until... Um, the 1850s, basically, in England and in the rest of the British Empire at the time, and until about 1860 in the United States, um, there was a dominant ethos that was quite different in its understanding of how Christianity ties into church services and are the architectural expression of buildings designed for those services than uh, is to, true uh, today. When I tell Episcopalians today that their church, our church, uh, was once a thoroughly Protestant, overwhelmingly um, low church uh, understanding of itself as a church, as opposed to a high church or Catholic understanding, which was an extreme minority position until uh, the time of the American Civil War, and even then remained a minority position till roughly the um, promulgation of the 1979 Book of Common Prayer, which had a definite tilt in the high church uh, look and uh, perspective. If I tell people that, they just don't believe me. If, or if they believe me, they believe me in the same way that they might believe that uh, Absalom Jones was a person who lived in Philadelphia or that the uh, Battle of Shiloh took place at a certain moment in 1862. Um, it has no impact. It is as if I'm speaking to uh, a statue or I am a statue. I, uh, so um, I've spent years and years trying to convince people that the dominant ethos, which at least needed to be taken seriously today and was not some kind of weird uh, variant uh, that was crazy or uh, bizarre or eccentric, 
uh, was Protestant Anglicanism, which was simply mainstream um, English and American Anglicanism in, uh, until something called the Oxford Movement began to change the perception, or what is today called the paradigm, both in England and later in this country. When I tell people that, it's as if, I mean, I'm, I, it, it means nothing. It, it has no impact on, uh, they still just go ahead and they just assume that every service is supposed to be Holy Communion by definition. And every time you open the door, you're supposed to do this and that, and everybody bows at a certain point and stands at a certain point and does this and does that, and it's just assumed. It's like uh, European people or people in what uh, Kerouac called the Fellaheen world, what we today call the third world or used to call the third world, uh, two-thirds world, uh, that uh, sort of life just comes out of the ground and you just accept it as it is and blood relationships are the way they are and relations between men and women are the way they are and they've been done time immemorial and uh, that's just the way it is because it is written. And you have that same kind of extraordinarily docile view of, of history even in relationship if you've ever tried to run a church or tried to influence a church or tried to write about it a church or tried to simply plan a service, people look at you with looks of uh, complete obliviousness when you point out the fact that it wasn't always done this way and it was done a different way and the way was um, good and right and had its, uh, had its virtues, notwithstanding the virtues of today's way. There were virtues of the other way which were missing and wouldn't it be better to at least examine them so we might have a more balanced approach to such a thing as conducting worship in Episcopal churches. But it, I, this is why I don't want to do this podcast because it's, a, it's an exercise in complete futility. No one will ever believe you except a few Presbyterian people who are sort of have a, have a kind of idealized, romanticized picture of pre-Oxford movement Anglicanism and, or English Puritanism or something like that, that that didn't really exist either. So you, the only people that are interested in what you're saying are people who aren't Episcopalians, who have a kind of, who want to have this kind of chimera <laughs> of, a, of an early 19th century and before Reformational Anglicanism, which somehow buoys their Reformed version of Presbyterianism. So it, it's this is completely, I might as well just not do this. It's kind of a fretting exercise, which will end up in a tombstone up on the hill, as in uh, Thornton Wilder's great play. So um, I'm going to do it just as a request, because the, the evidence, by the way, is unarguable. The evidence, if you look at the evidence or if you care about the evidence, it's like a, it's like Bleak House. It's like a lawsuit that if you actually argued it, Jarndyce versus Jarndyce is only one possible fair and just and legal solution to the problem. But no one ever actually stops and argues it or could care less. And so it just is, is gone and passed and it's a flotsam and jetsam of some idea that did exist, but it's as if it didn't exist. It's as if it never happened. So this is a complete exercise in futility, which still has some interest and I think some appeal and even some beauty. Now, let me um, uh, say uh, what uh, the, 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 the thing that clinches it. If you ever look at um, the illustrations, I think they were, they were done by Boz. Uh, it was a well-known English uh, um, engraver or um, en engraver and creator of book illustrations in the 19th century England, but many of uh, Dickens's books were illustrated by Boz, or before Boz started illustrating them by someone who was known as Boz. Someone, uh, there were a couple of other illustrators in the earlier works, but they all are the same kind of vintage style of black and white uh, linotype drawings. But um, whenever you see a church scene, and there are several in these drawings from about 1845 to 1865, you, you, it just the argument is just right there. For example, in David Copperfield, there are two. Um, uh, 
uh, drawings by Boz of church scenes that occur in David Copperfield, the novel. And there, uh, and there, there they are. There's a huge high pulpit, a gigantic Protestant high central pulpit where the minister has just conducted or preached a sermon or done something liturgical. And they're all the pews and they're all facing the pulpit. They're facing each other and they're facing the pulpit. They're not facing east. You don't see the altar. There is an altar that was used three and often four times a year and certainly for um, rites and ceremonies such as marriages and christenings. But Sunday morning was always uh, pulpit-based and it just was. And uh, the the fact that the Dickens illustrations in, uh, I think there's one little Dorrit and there's one contemporary too in Copperfield, and I believe there are two or three others. Um, these illustrations, for the popular mind, they were just for popular people. They were done with the idea that if anyone in that period wanted to have a picture of a church service in a Church of England parish, which was the dominant church by far, by a long shot, just because it was, in, say, 1850 England, there you have it. It was just, they were all the same. There were no churches that were not designed more or less with some variant of the following themes. A high or central pulpit that was where the central uh, transaction of the service, the sermon, whether it was bad or good, and usually, of course, it was bad, no difference from today, and it was boring, but that's the way, <clears throat> coming from the Protestant emphasis on the word, which you have in uh, Christopher Wren's famous discussion of what he was attempting to do by creating an auditory cathedral in St. Paul's in London. You have uh, the central pulpit. The altar is used for the communion, which is celebrated three times mandatorily and often four times a year, possibly more, but not Normally, for the average churchgoer, three times a year was it with communion, uh, Easter, uh, Christmas, and Whit Sunday or Pentecost, and uh, sometimes Ascension Day. But there it was, and uh, even even Easter there. I can give you all sorts of times when uh, at main uh, days of the church, uh, it was not communion. Uh, on a Christmas or an Easter. There would be a communion service held in the two days of that particular feast or the 24 hours, but the main service might honestly be morning prayer. But no one knows that and no one cares. And what were they trying to do? What were these people thinking they were doing? Well, they were going back to the Reformation where there had been a tremendous reaction against superstition. And this reaction against superstition, which they associated with Roman Catholicism, occurred in context with the political upheaval by which the Roman Catholics, in particular Queen Mary Tudor, what later became known as Bloody Mary, had um, uh, burned at the stake 350 or something like that, regular English people of all classes and types, especially uh, working class people of that era who died for their Protestant faith, as they saw it, as well as bishops and nobility. And uh, uh, about 350, perhaps more, but no less, were burned, and that had a permanent impact on the Christian consciousness of of uh, Britain, England, Ireland, and Wales, and Scotland, and they said never again. And after the Spanish Armada of 1588, they uh, their uh, Protestant reaction to superstition, which was very widespread, was politically sort of uh, expressed through the Spanish Armada and the sudden um, national wake up call that the forces of authoritarian Catholicism were going to uh, potentially destroy English Republican democracy or constitutional monarchy as it later came and as a result of the Glorious Revolution of 1680 and the Act of Settlement of 1701. This Protestant consciousness, which is reflected in novels like Tom Jones, famous statement there, um, and other places, was reflected in a notion of worship that said the primary transaction 
on a Sunday morning was the preacher's exposition of the Bible, which might have some saving and powerful truths, which the Holy Spirit would then sort of carry into a person's innermost being, and that person would therefore be helped, consoled, strengthened, aided, given comfort, and um, even given incentive and new enthusiasm to live uh, in a way that would be uh, a decent and civilized thing, both for himself, his family, and his fellow citizens. And this was uh, tied up with the national understanding of England as a monarchy, a Protestant monarchy, and it was embodied in the coronation oath, and there are many other ways it was, but it was embodied in church architecture with a high, usually central or center pulpit, but sometimes to the right or to the left, depending on the configuration of sometimes the medieval building in which the new liturgy was being enacted, clear glass windows because it was believed that people could read and they were no longer needed to be taught by means of illustration, but they could be taught by the printed word. And of course, this had a downside to it. I'm fully aware that it had a downside to it and it tended to besmirch the illustration or the stained glass as being something that could also convey truth, often beyond words, and that's something that was lost at the Reformation. But suffice it to say, it was a reaction to an overly stimulated and sort of superstitious view of the image, rather than a view of the image that was that was balanced and rooted in something like grace and faith, rather than idolatry and uh, sort of wrong uh, hope, or unfounded hope. And so you had uh, these churches with clear glass windows, pews that could seat a lot of people, balconies that could seat a lot of people benches for children and a minister who hopefully could preach something that was worth hearing, but seldom in practice, but that was the ideal. And the communion that was considered a little bit dodgy because it was something that could have been and certainly had been in the medieval period taken to an extreme and into a superstitious view of the bread and the wine and uh, sort of a wrong compartmentalized view of religion, which they believed Roman Catholicism led to a kind of ethical compartmentalization, which could justify outrageous actions provided that you went through the motions. That is not a true statement necessarily, but that was the impression that was rooted in a historical um, and bloody confrontation that went on for a long time known as the Reformation. Now, these... uh, prayer book interiors. They became known as, today they're known as prayer book because they reflect the way that the prayer book is done with morning prayer being the main service, communion. People go up for communion, but they go beyond the pulpit. But the service uh, Sunday morning is primarily a preached word service known as morning prayer or matins. And prayer book churches, whether they were in Catholic, uh, old formerly Catholic buildings, which many of them were, or newly constructed buildings like the buildings of uh, Christopher Wren, these services uh, were conducted in buildings with a central or featured pulpit, prominent pulpit, a diminished altar or chancel or altar area, and uh, uh, then a tremendous emphasis on the community people gathering. Now, the Puritans took this a step further, and you have meeting houses in New England, some of which still exist, and the sort of Presbyterian approach, which came in from Geneva, where you have the pulpit over the altar. Um, Every national tradition took its own way based on its teachings, its founding Uh, professors and uh, teachers. Um, But here uh, we we have in Anglicanism uh, a movement that was overwhelmingly the case as finally shown in Dickens, who is a perfect uh, place to see it. It's the kind of church in which Bob Cratchit and Tiny Tim worshipped on Christmas morning. Now um, that being the case, but no one wants to hear it. It's, as I say, it's as if it as if I'm talking about antediluvian Cro-Magnon man. Uh, for me personally, this always had meaning. I loved the experience 
of being in a church where I wasn't confronted by a lot of things telling me what to think or do, but I could be quiet with my own thoughts with beautiful stained glass. I could look outside and see the oak tree or the willow tree or the palm tree if it was on South Carolina, and uh, I could. Uh, no one was telling me what to think, and if the sermon was good, which occasionally it might actually be good, the Holy Spirit, the unseen one who helps us with sighs too deep for words, would, would make a difference and not emerge a better person. And I was very committed to it and invested in it. I saw the weaknesses of it because you all you need to do is go into a church that is dry or very cerebral in its approach, and you'll immediately see some of the weaknesses of this. And I also saw the piety and the humility of of Roman Catholic people and uh, of high church Anglican people, which was um, not to be carped at and uh, had a humility and a devotion and a a deep uh, uh, kind of consecration that was just as moving and important and real and uh, just as satisfactory before God or before whatever is the Almighty, which is God in my opinion. Uh, There was no real, um, I didn't want to put down anyone else just because I like this, but uh, the view was that really you weren't religious unless you were Catholic or high church, that somehow to be religious and to be non-secular was to be oriented to the Eucharist and to be oriented to calling everybody Father and to a view of the priesthood that was entirely based on sacramental um, sort of instantiation and some way of looking at the church which somehow made it more vertical and somehow the Protestant view was more horizontal and therefore not really religious and true sort of alpha, the uh, A-team always went Anglo-Catholic or high church. I remember when uh, I someone asked me, oh, 40 years ago, uh, you know, well, what seminary are you attending? He was a nice, well-meaning Episcopal priest and he said, well, what seminary are you attending? And I explained that it was St. John's Nottingham in the Church of England, and he said, "Oh, is it is it Anglo Catholic?" I mean, he just he, he just he just assumed he just assumed that it, because it was English, you know, and he had this picture, it must. Oh, is it Anglo Catholic? And I said, "Well, no, actually, it, it it it's the opposite. It's on the opposite side of the church." And he said, "Oh." Well, I mean, he didn't, he, not only was there a negative uh, feeling coming across, he didn't even know what I was talking about. But whatever it was, if it wasn't that, it must. Oh. And this guy, by the way, was very, very radical and liberal politically and about all the issues facing the church and the political issues of the culture wars. But to be really religious, you had to be sort of high church in his view. And I imbibed that with my mother's milk, although fortunately I had grown up at a, at a, in an Episcopal environment that was in fact low church by comparison. It was low to broad, liberal in ethos, and non-Roman and non-superstitious and pretty uh, common sense and morning prayer oriented as all Episcopal churches were with every city in those days until about 1970. Was They were all low church. You had communion on Sundays at 11 o'clock. Sorry, you had communion once a month, first Sunday of the month, and then the other three Sundays of the month, you would have morning prayer. And this was de rigueur absolutely everywhere. Occasionally, you might run into a church where they had communion twice a month at 11 o'clock and morning prayer twice, but that was considered a little, not fully the norm. Certainly, the old established parishes were uniformly communion first Sunday at 11, morning prayer, uh, second, third, and fourth Sundays, and um, sometimes uh, with fifth Sundays, you'd have what was called anti-communion, which was not communion, but it was different from morning prayer. Now, every city, however, did have an Anglo-Catholic parish. There was the Advent Brimmer Street in Boston, and there was another one. Um, golly, I always forget. There were usually one in town and one in the near suburbs. You had you had the, the Ascension in St. Agnes uh, in uh, uh, Washington Way downtown, and then you had St. Paul's K Street a little further in Foggy Bottom. And those were the Catholic parishes, in other words, low church situation. You had every uh, Savannah had uh, St. John's. Uh, uh, 
and uh, but all the other churches were low church and uh, <clears throat> this was just the way it was and uh, uh providence had a high church one and newport had one but all the other churches and there were several uh including the old colonial one usually were low church and sort of that was the way it was and so you had in big cities you had one big catholic watering hole it was an eclectic parish and it was always father mazel or father um richard cornish martin and these were wonderful men they were saintly men they were holy men and they stood for something different now today, uh, the, uh, the, it's completely changed, and if you had a low church parish, it would be considered probably evangelical, or maybe odd, or maybe offshoot, or maybe uh, cranky. Uh, and it might well be, because you know you can't uh, you can't fight a battle without getting cranky. Now, uh, just so you know, uh, for the record, I'm going to give you the sort of list of the books that that uh, simply explain the way the Church of England and the Episcopal Church uh, uh, used to be, as I said, really prior to 1979, but liturgically, uh, architecturally, I should say, prior to the Oxford movement, which was a turn to the high church conducted by some Oxford theologians, uh, notoriously John Henry Newman and um, two other uh, famous men, uh, and that's a whole other big subject, who changed the weather. They changed the direction of the weather vane. They changed the direction from which the wind was blowing, partly because the Protestant evangelical low church tradition had kind of run out of gas, and it was pretty cranky, and it had become very tight and very propositional, and there wasn't that much religion in it. So these Oxford people had a real role to play. They had seen how that the language of Zion had become trivialized by evangelicals, who many Victorian writers mimic Mr. Honeyman in... Um in uh, Dickens somewhere, and Mr. Cadman, or maybe the other way around, in Thackeray and the Newcombs, and uh, George Eliot uh, in some of her novels, although she has one very friendly uh, uh, portrait of a low church Anglican clergyman in Janet's Repentance, Scenes of Clerical Life. But for the most part, these sort of low church uh, parsons were pilloried in the literature, and everything went high church, um, and uh, uh, it was forgotten. So some books that you can read which uh, write the record, although no one reads them, one is called called uh, Churches the Victorians Forgot by Mark Chatfield, published by Moorland in England. And I'm not sure it's in print anymore, but it's easily available through uh, eBay. And the best book on the subject is uh, <clears throat> by Nigel Yates. It's Oxford University Press, and it's very much in print, and it's called Buildings, <clears throat> Faith, and Worship, The Liturgical Arrangement of Anglican Churches from 1600 to 1900. <clears throat> and this book was first published in 1991, paperback edition 2000, and, I, and it's lavishly illustrated. And uh, it has pictures and designs of many, many, many uh, parish churches in England and Ireland, Anglican churches in England and Ireland, mostly in England, <clears throat> that were Protestant interiors and show the way it was. And those few churches which have not been fussed with or for some historical strange reason have left, uh, been left as they were and are still that way, usually they're... Um, redundant churches, as they're called in England, or they're chapels now of a larger church that was built under the influence of the high church movement later. Um, <clears throat> but you can see these, and he has many photographs, and he proves his point without the shadow of a doubt that uh, the liturgical arrangement of Anglican churches from roughly 1600 to 1900 was, uh, was um, uh, Protestant in every uh, conceivable case. Um, two books that are less... Uh, uh, specifically devoted to this, but carry the day because they're well illustrated, um, are uh, Etchell's and Adelshaw's 
I believe it's called The Liturgical Arrangements of Anglican Churches. My copy of that book is in storage. And the other one, which I have here, uh, signed to me by the wonderful Frederick Hill, uh, long dead, uh, the great, uh, wonderful rector of St. Michael's Church, Upper Broadway in New York City. This is Stuart and Georgian Churches by Marcus Whiffen, W-H-I-F-F-E-N. That's out of print, but easily available today. And... Uh, Another one, uh, which uh, makes the uh, point, is called A Traveler's Guide to Places of Worship. And this is for England. And it's by um, Chris Charles Kitely and Michael Cyprian. And it was published in 1986. And I think it's out of print, but available. And it has a section on the prayer book churches on page 104 when it describes the ubiquity and uniformity of these uh, Protestant interiors in uh, England uh, and Wales and with very lavishly illustrated book. Um, there are many more books uh, because the subject is now, because the whole historical tilt went so completely the other way, um, There, uh, no one was saying this. I wrote a book called The Protestant Face of Anglicanism in which I described this and it. some people read it but there it is. Uh, uh, it lies on a shelf somewhere. But um, this... Uh, uh, people, because uh, people always look at, you know, who's the low man on the totem pole or who's the poor person whom we ought to be a little sympathetic with, this uh, understanding, this simply, this this fact came a little bit more to the surface beginning in the 80s. Chatfield's book was very important in that. There's another book which I recommend by... Um, Vernon Perdue Davis and James Scott Rawlings, and it's called Virginia's Antebellum Churches. And in it, uh, there are wonderful line architectural drawings. I think it's from 1978 around then, when all the uh, Episcopal churches, uh, most of these are Episcopal churches, though not all, of Virginia, which was an historically low church diocese, uh, more, much more typical of the rest of the country, although uh, still retains in theory a kind of historic low church sense of it itself, whatever that may mean today. Um, the uh, book, um, Virginia's Antebellum Churches, has wonderful line drawings of these uh, preserved colonial churches, all of which almost Mary and I visited, and all of which are richly worth a visit. And I'll talk a little bit more about that at the end. And finally, if you sort of the classic work, uh, which shows the whole shooting match, is the famous Collins Pocket Guides to English Parish Churches. Now, this was edited and introduced by John Betjeman, the famous some poet laureate of England and uh, a very devout Anglican and a quite remarkable English character, now deceased. And I have the one sitting next to me called The North. There's also one called The South, referring to England. And he has uh, done a gazetteer of absolutely every single uh, church uh, that was... Um, uh, of note architecturally in the British Isles, actually in England. Uh, but and, and he talks about different churches that reflect what I've done, but there are some wonderful architectural drawings in his lengthy introduction by John Betjeman. It's called Introduction, uh, and he has, oh gosh, it's about 95 pages in which he uh, describes, and with these extraordinary line drawings, the prayer book church, uh, uh, starting in the 17th century, outside and inside, comparing it to the churches today. And he also very lovingly um, 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 describes what a service, uh, a Sunday service would be like in 1780, in 1680, and then again in 1910 in a Catholic-type parish. And he himself was an Anglo-Catholic. But like, a, like all representative good people, John Betjeman understood that the old prayer book tradition, which was 
was Protestant and low church and uh, matins, morning prayer oriented, was in fact the governing tradition. Sorry. It was the majoritarian position. So um, this, in a very, with a tongue-in-cheek and humor and love, and he also wrote wonderful poems about low churches and high churches, one of which, the one about uh, Clifton, about the parish church, which I've spoken in and know well and have even uh, been part of for a while, in Clifton, England, outside of Bristol, which was once a spa area like Bath. Um, His poem about a low church uh, parish in the 20s in Clifton. It's got to be, it's a hilarious kind of kind of send-up of uh, late low church uh, English uh, horizontality in churches, uh, and it's really wonderful. But he himself was an Anglo-Catholic and uh, never changed, and you can see that in other poems, his famous Christmas poem, which has uh, the beautiful uh, passage at the end about transubstantiation in relationship to Christmas presents. So um, read uh, Betjeman. Uh, I've told you some of the other works, and there are a few other books I haven't mentioned, but the Chatfield, the Nigel Yates, uh, and the Betjeman, and also the uh, Etchells and Adelshaw f- from a long time ago, which has an unfortunate and rather bizarre ending, but its description of prayer book churches with its drawings is uh, simply accurate. Now, I'll finish by saying that these churches you can visit and you can sort of get a feeling for the kind of chaste personal hopes of the people who build them and live them and believed in them, even if those hopes have been completely down the tubes in the last hundred years or so. And uh, where would I go? I think I would, in England, I would go to some of the rural ones. I would go to the church in Wheatfield, Oxfordshire. It's a little field outside Oxford that's so wonderful. I would go to King's Norton, Leicestershire, almost above all. It's truly an enlightenment, uh, 1780 uh, enlightenment of, of the Protestant Enlightenment Church. It's a little bit uh, cold because it's now, no one goes to it. It's in a tiny little place. There are such places still in England. They may be, you know, um, a half a mile from a housing development uh, that is completely different in ethos uh, or less. But occasionally you come across these places, and King's Norton, which is just south of Leicester, is one of the most amazing survivals. Um, there are any Tushingham in Cheshire. Um, there are few left in London. Um, as I say, I've been through the list, and I've, there's a book called Redundant Churches. Great name, isn't it? And they list them all. Many of these are no longer used as churches except one service a year. Uh, now, if you're in this country, but go to the ones I've mentioned. Langley Chapel in Shropshire is a classic. It's wonderful. Um, and there are a couple in Derbyshire, and I'll give you the names of them. But if you're in, in this country, uh, go to some of the, the... The great one to go to is Christchurch, Lancaster, Virginia, and the Northern Neck, which is, for historical uh, reasons of chance, is a perfectly preserved prayer book, Episcopal Church, which has never been altered since the day it was sort of closed up in about 1770 or 1780. And it is a remarkable and perfect, letter-perfect survival and the congregation there doesn't you know, they usually they have these docents dressed in colonial garb who don't know as much as you do, and they talk down to you like crazy. But if you explain to them that you're an Episcopalian, if you are, or that you're interested in it, and you, you, you sort of make it somehow plain to them that you're there for really learning, to really see it, and that you know a little bit about it, they'll leave you alone, and then you can really appreciate this remarkable survival. Christchurch, Lancaster. Another uh, very famous one is Trinity Church, Newport, which I find a little bit too much like a museum. But nevertheless, that's just the way it feels to me, but it has a uh, it has a central pulpit which is notorious and beautiful and very striking. Or another one to visit is Christ Church, Alexandria, Virginia, George Washington's church. 
which has a central pulpit and a secondary communion table. And I'm sure people there are sometimes embarrassed by it, but there it is. And it's not an evangelical parish in the sense that that word might be used commonly. It's, a, it's the way it is. But because of the historic nature of the building, it's not been changed. And that's Christ Church uh, in, uh, in Alexandria. Uh, you could go to Old Christ Church Philadelphia, and although they've moved the pulpit from the center to the side, it's very evocative. Or St. Paul's Chapel Fulton Street in downtown New York, which played such a tremendous role of consolation and a place of refuge and hope after 9-11. Uh, uh, St. Paul's Church, which is just a few blocks north on uh, on Broadway, uh, north of Trinity Church, and that's a famous place and has the, the, the Protestant interiors, although they've tried to dice it up a little bit, and there are a lot of candles, and so you won't quite get the same feeling, but you basically they haven't. That's the way it was. Um, and uh, there's a church in Marblehead, even in Massachusetts. There's some churches like this in, in New England, but not many. There are a couple in Connecticut, but the best ones, and there's some in the Virginia countryside uh, um, that are just absolutely unchanged, but uh, the best one there is Christchurch Lancaster, and uh, then there's some. There's one near Leonardtown, Maryland, which is fantastic, and some of them have been gussied up. But the ones I'm talking to you now are the ones which have, for historical reasons, not been touched. So there we have it, um, and. Uh, uh, it's a fascinating fact that uh, these interiors reflect a vision of a church life that has been lost. And uh, all I object to is the sort of willful ignorance of people who just don't want to know that it was a fact. I feel often like I'm in 1984 where they're sort of editing the photographs and editing out people who are now uh, not uh, smiled on by the governing powers. I mean, it really, th th it's as if these places have never lived. It's as if the people who went to them never existed, that uh, there should be such mammoth and unappreciativeness in regard to this tradition, which did in fact have a very strong base. If you talk to um, George Washington or James Madison or Franklin Delano Roosevelt. This is the last thing I'll tell you. When you um, there's a new book out by that wonderful Pittsburgh historian um, who wrote, uh, you know, the uh, uh, oh, I'm McDonough. De, de, uh, anyway, uh, I suddenly slipped my mind, but he won all these prizes, and he's the great uh, uh, Pittsburgh historian. And he wrote a book that came out this past Christmas of 2010 um, about uh, uh, the uh, the um, birth of the movie of the hymn "O Little Town of Bethlehem," which which was at uh, Trinity Episcopal Church, Rittenhouse Square, Philadelphia. But he tied it into the very uh, powerful uh, Christmas Eve service in 1941 uh, uh, when uh, um, um, Churchill was visiting the White House and uh, Roosevelt gave a remarkable and very beautiful speech at the lighting of the National Christmas Tree, this service which now presidents are sort of embarrassed about, that they're sort of laden with this very Christian or unmistakably Christian um, event that happens in December at the White House. But in uh, uh, December of uh, 1941, in very dark days, there was uh, uh, President Roosevelt and uh, Churchill, and Churchill gave a few words, and uh, um, Roosevelt gave a few words. And this is very beautifully portrayed in uh, War and Remembrance. This moment is accurately portrayed uh, with uh, uh, Robert Hardy playing Churchill and Ralph Bellamy playing Roosevelt. It's very well done. The lighting of the tree and the speech. And uh, one of the uh, pictures in the book book uh, by David, writer, wonderful, uh, this new book that's come out, is uh, the next morning, uh, Mrs. Roosevelt and President Roosevelt uh, asked uh, Winston Churchill to accompany them to their parish, which at that point was uh, was uh, St. Thomas Church, uh, the church of FDR, St. Thomas Episcopal Church in downtown Washington. 
um, still a lively parish. And uh, uh, there, um, uh, there's a photograph on Christmas morning of... Uh, president and the prime and the great Winston Churchill and Mrs. Roosevelt greeting the rector and the rector is wearing a cassock and surplice um, with a tippet, a black hood. In other words, he's wearing Protestant garb on the holiest day of the whole year with Easter in the Christian tradition. He's wearing low church garb. He's wearing what today would never in a trillion years be worn by an Episcopalian rector, or at least in, except if he was bizarre or trying to prove a point. In a Christmas, end of a Christmas service, he'd be, at the most, he'd be wearing what's called a cassock alb with a stole and a cincture. Uh, but to be wearing a not only a cassock and surplus, but with a black tippet or preaching scarf greeting President Roosevelt. I mean, I see it and you say, oh my gosh, où sont les neiges d'antan? I mean, this is where, has does anyone know except the people who read this book and do they understand the implications of this rector standing there in um, uh, Protestant garb on Christmas morning greeting uh, at one of the greatest, most important moments of crisis in the history of this country? And there they are. So it's very revealing and it's revealing to me. But as I said, no one noticed it. No one cares. And it doesn't matter. So I might as well have not given this podcast. Please don't think I'm being bitter. Please don't think I'm holding anything against anybody. I was asked to do this. I didn't need to do it. I do have the information in my sort of in my head about it. It is interesting. It is fascinating. But it means absolutely nothing and is ultimately completely meaningless. But that doesn't mean that the message underneath it is completely meaningless, but the attempt to try to reorient uh, uh, Protestant religious history by means of a survey of what actually was um, is entirely fruitless and meaningless and ineffective, and I'm not sorry I did it. Thank you very much, and God bless.